Candace workaholic. Thank you guys so much for allowing me to be a part of this amazing weekend and Rick for the initial invitation, my host Barbara and you know my friends uh, whom I'm also sharing this weekend with and my dear friend Crystal uh, who made the trek from North Carolina to hang out with me. We've been friends since I was uh, under a year sober and you know that just means everything to me. I love you so much and I hope my actions support that. Uh, welcome, if you are new. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. It has come to this. Do you know what I mean? On a Saturday afternoon, this is what's going down. This is where it is. This is the hottest ticket in town. If you don't know, you would want to know, right? And, uh, you know, what's interesting, especially when we're doing these type of weekends, is I'm not just here to contribute to the pod, and that, that's exactly what I'm here to do, right? I am a part of a great whole. It is important that I always remember that. But I'm also here to get fed. My life as an ex-problem drinker isn't just the, the constant thought of others and how I may help meet their needs, but it is also making sure I stay right-sized. And so, um, and thanks to the Al-Anon speaker, oh my God, you just took me all the way there. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Larcine brought up so much stuff, I said, darn you, I'm going to have to do another inventory this weekend. Probably read it to Katie, you know what I mean? Charlie says, you're the go-to person, so uh, give my sponsor a break. But, um, you know, I am um, just, it's a good deal. It's a good deal. I'm so happy to be sober, to draw a sober breath. I don't ever want to forget that I am in a different space in my life right now, and I want to embrace that, right, and honor it. Uh, and uh, in order for me to continue to stay here, I must continue the process of unfoldment, of stepping into my truth, right, of who I was created to be. The disease of alcoholism will tell me a lot of things, and it will sound reasonable, it will sound seductive, and it will sound like it has my best interest at heart. It does not. And so the beauty of this is that my feet are trained in Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't matter what's happening in my head, my feet are trained. And so um, Rick was like, you chose six and seven. I'm like, I probably did. I was in a six and seven zone, right? So, uh, and years ago, years ago, I remember, you know, doing all-step weekends, and either I'd be paired with my buddy Ralph W., or I'd do them alone, and I would, like, skip over six and seven, because I'm like, oh, you know, defects of character is two paragraphs, and no, six and seven is the crooks of absolutely everything, right? And so we'll talk about that. Uh, I just want to share a little bit of background. I need to give you just a, just a hint. Look, my girls are small, but they're mighty. So... Uh, <laughs> They were like, we want to see what's going on, too. What's happening? Uh, <laughs> more will be revealed. So <laughs> my sobriety date is August 16, 1995. That's my date. That date is the reason I draw breath. That date is absolutely everything in my life. It is the reason I get up out of bed in the morning. Without that date, I cease to exist. Without that date, I don't want to be here. That date is an eternity to me. And what that means is that over the years I've been here, many things have had to change in order for my date to remain the same. I've had to be willing to to surrender behaviors and belief systems that would not support me staying with you consistently. When I got sober, I was 96 pounds. I'm not 96 today. And, uh, and I told Katie over lunch, I said, I'm going to let you have this weekend and give us the fitted dresses because Mama's had an emotional winter and I put on a little something, right? So we're doing flowing. And, uh, you know, 
So, but I'm giving you hair. You know what I mean? If I won't give you this, I'll give you that. There we go. It's a, it's a trade-off in life. And so um, I remember, you know, I got sober at 28. I'm 51, and I'll be 52 next month. And I looked older then than I do now, right? Because I was absolutely exhausted from the way I live out there. When I got sober, um, the 96 pounds came as a direct result of a nutritious meal, uh, which is like a Snickers bar every three or four days. And um, I was uh, hyper aware, right? I would drink and enhance my drinking with just a couple of things that kept me up for for long durations. And so... Um, <laughs> I also, when I got here, I was missing my front tooth. I'll tell you what happened. I shared an opinion and it wasn't supported. That's what happened. (laughs) But it never stopped me from talking. (laughs) When I got sober, I didn't have a strand of hair on my head because when I drank and there were things that lived in my hair, they became active when I got into a heightened drunk state. And so, you know, I'm fine. If you want to come over my house, come over my house, but don't rearrange my stuff. I don't like that. And so I remember telling my friend, I said, there's something up there. She was visibly alarmed. She leaned back. She asked me, how do you know? I said, because while we were talking, they ran from this side to that side. She never gave me direction per se. She shared information that I embraced. She said, you know, rubbing alcohol will sterilize anything. She didn't say go to the store, purchase a bottle of rubbing alcohol, pour it all over your hair, but I think we all agree it was implied. And so... And so that's what I did. Before I took any action, after I had the bottle of rubbing alcohol, when I was good and drunk, I set everybody down, right? I felt we needed to have a group conscience. And so uh, this is all about unity. And so I, I told them, I said, look, look, I know you're up there. I know you're up there. You can stay, but I'm going to sterilize you. And so what I would do in the beginning is I would just pour it all over my head and my scalp, and it was very soothing. It was as if I were uh, uh, in a deep meditation or running on the beach, only not, right? And then after a while, they began to get immune to it, and so they started to get aggressive, and I had to get aggressive. And that meant I took a pair of scissors, I cut off all of my hair, but new friends, half measures avail us what? Nothing. And so I took a shaver, and I shaved it all to the scalp, because I didn't want there to be a follicle they could hang on to. And then I would wear T-shirts on my head as if they were fashionable turbans, making my own statement. And, you know, and that was the beauty, the glory, and the grandness that I came to you with, right? It is important that I remember that because I'm 23 years sober and I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I live in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that means that I have commitments in my meetings and committed meetings. I'm not a visitor. I don't come and wait for you to set up the chairs, wait for you to make the coffee, wait for you to make me feel good in my seat. I'm an active participant. As a direct result of coming here, but I'll tell you something, when I came, and I know what you're thinking, because I painted a vision, you're like, ooh, bald-headed and toothless, ooh, that's sexy, I know you're thinking it, especially right there, right? And then, but the beauty and reality of coming in in that condition is that you are then in much less danger of being 13th step, right? So... Except there's always one. And, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You could have, uh, you could be limping and missing a limb. They'll be like, I know she got potential. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
So here's the thing. If I'm sharing with you that that's how I look outwardly, you already know that I was crushed inwardly. It talks about it in, in We Agnostics, right, that outward appearances are not always an inward reality. So it is important, and I'm just going to, I'm going to like sail through uh, the first five proposals. I need to do that. Uh, and the other thing I'm going to ask that you do is to examine for yourself the information that you're hearing this weekend. Oftentimes what happens, especially when we're in these types of forums, is people will sit there and whatever we say, then that's what it is. No, no, no. You need to examine, is that hitting in your gut? Does that sound plausible? Let me go into the work and see where that is. Because I'm also going to share with you some opinions I have about the experiences I have. So it's important that we be able to discern that, right? Too often I have put people in a place of authority. No one is the authority except our text. So that's just super, super important. It's dangerous. And I've seen the dangers of it manifest. So I... Um, Step one for me has to hurt. Step one has to hurt in every area of my life, in every area of my life, or I don't have a need for step two. I have to be thoroughly convinced, not just drunk, but sober. I have hit bottoms in sobriety, and I'll talk about certain situations as it relates to step six, right? Why I need the defects of character removed or why I'm ready at least to, to have them surrendered because they're causing me so much mayhem. For me to come to you as an adult, 28 years old, missing my front tooth, no hair, even if I wanted to go back into the life that I had and I'd been in the entertainment industry, I was young, I was cocky, I was successful, so even if I wanted to go back into that life, it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible because of the actions I had taken out there. The actions that I took out there would challenge how I view you in here without the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And the unmanageability, the unsettledness in my spirit and how that inner chaos and conflict continued to show up made me run to the beauty, the glory, and the warm blanket of step two. Step two... Right? Being restored to sanity for me is as simple as being restored to principled living. That's what it means. And when we talk about a God of our own understanding, it says God because we have origins in the Oxford group. I do not pray to a conventional God. I don't have to submit to any type of Western or Eastern anything. That is not what it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That almost killed me. It attacked me two years ago. I lost my stepmom and my whole life was devastated. Devastated. This woman was with me through everything. She and my dad had been childhood sweethearts, and, and he didn't tell her about my mom. Whoops. And so that ended. Because <laughs> daddy was a pimp, right? And so anyway, I mean literally. Yeah, he was. So, uh, so that ended, and, you know, I came about, right? And several years later, they had gotten back together and were together for a number of years. And so even though I've never been close to my dad and rarely saw him, I've always been close to her. She was in my corner. I remember one day I had gone to her place of business, and she was a uh, had a high position in her job. And, and I would go there up eight days, right, smelling like a woman, should never smell, looking crazy, and I would be hungry and always come with a big lie for a little bit of change. And her coworkers would look at me with anger because I was killing her, and I couldn't see it because it wasn't about her. It was about the vacancy, the vastness, the emptiness in my spirit that in my desperation I'm trying to feel, right? And so people tend to get hurt. I'm not intentionally trying to harm you. And we'll talk about that in step six, because a defect of character is a natural instinct that far exceeds its intended purpose.
And so I would go there, and I remember her saying, are you hungry? Yes, I'm hungry. We went down to the cafeteria, and we were eating, and I was eating so quickly that I broke the plastic fork off in my mouth. And I remember her just pausing, and it was in that moment that I saw the pain, but then she masked it, like, in three or four seconds. And she calmly stood up, walked over, picked up another fork, came back to me, handed it, and resumed eating. She never shamed me. She never shamed me. She just loved me. And so when she died, we knew she was going to pass. I didn't know it was going to be that soon. I was talking at a conference in Rhode Island the the weekend before she passed. I talked to her that night. I told her I loved her. I always pick up a rock everywhere I go. It was a tradition we had. She asked me to do it. Um, and so she goes, wherever you go, bring back a rock. And I'm like, why? She goes, I love rocks. Okay, so anytime I was at an AA conference, I would get a rock, and I told them, you're going to see me looking for a rock. My stepmom is dying. I don't know what my life is going to look like, but I'm going to bring a rock back to her. At the end of that conference, it was a little larger than this one. People, I, didn't, I hadn't even seen them leave, but they were handing me rocks in line. Tell your stepmom we love her. Tell her Rhode Island is praying for her. Tell her all these things. And when I came back that night, I called her, and I said, I'm going to come see you before I normally would. Because Sharon C. said, you may not have the time you think you have. She said, I love you. And I said, I love you. She was dead the next morning. And so what happened for me is I drove 70 miles. I, I knelt beside her and I prayed for a safe transition into the realm of the unseen. And then later on that day at home, I was just talking to her and talking to her because I loved her and I'm bereft. And I said, I need you to let me know you made it safely to the other side. I need to know you made it safely. I need a sign. And then I was like, oh, wait, maybe I'm breaking protocol. God, excuse me, God, will you let me know that my stepmom made it safely to the other side because you know she didn't want to go and you don't want people afraid to meet you, right? And so um, I didn't think I gave it a timeline, but in two weeks when I hadn't received a sign, I stopped praying. I lost my faith. And that set about a series of, of events in motion I left my home group, leaving my home group necessitated me leaving my sponsor because she required me to be at that particular meeting. And I called a friend, someone I've known for years, I've traveled with for years, who all these people know, I never mention her name out of respect. And, um, you know, I asked her, can I check in with you because I, um, I've lost, I've left my home group and I no longer have that sponsor and until I get a local one. And she said, oh, of course, darling, you can check in with me and gave me the days. And we went through this for about, Two months, and then I asked her if she would officially sponsor me, and she knew that I no longer believed in God because I was super vocal. Like, I would tell people, you're a sheep, it's propaganda, you know what I mean? And so, uh, <laughs> we can never not believe quietly. And so, uh, so, that was a Wednesday when I asked her. Thursday, I got this email from her, and in the email, it said um, in her meditation, God told her to ask me if I believed in God. If I didn't believe in God, would I be willing to believe in God? So I was looking at the email, and I was like, no, and no, we talked about it. And then, so I emailed her back, no, but I'm open to, you know, forming a new relationship with something. And, and so she said and responded back in this email that in her meditation, obviously not a quiet meditation, but in this meditation, God told her if I didn't believe the way she believed, she could not sponsor me. That is not in the book. 
I was 21 years sober. I was devastated. I was having anxiety attacks every minute of the day because when I no longer have a power greater than myself governing my life, I am the power. And when I'm the power, the world rests on my shoulders. I feel lost. I no longer have a sponsor or a home group. And I'm so grateful that my feet are trained that I'm still taught to go to meetings. I'm so grateful that I have had sponsors that have taken me through this book, not their opinion. Don't take me through your opinion. And I called her and I said, what you're saying is not in our text. I don't understand. She goes, oh, I've always been blessed to have the almighty loving hand of the creator in my life, and I wouldn't know how to sponsor you. I said, but if the purpose of this book is to bring me into a relationship with a power greater than myself, why would your default response not be, let's go through the steps and see if you can bridge a new relationship? I'm so grateful that when I came to you toothless and bald-headed, you didn't say I can only sponsor you when you have a job, when your teeth are fixed, when your hair is grown back. I would have been lost. And so I love her. I know that she wasn't trying to harm me, but it is very important that I have my own experience. And, and my current sponsor, Linda, uh, is an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's 41 years sober. She is grounded in the book. And I need that. And I just to quickly close that out, because people will go, oh, you still not believe? I don't pray to a conventional God. I pray to the power of healing, love, and light. That is my triangle, and it works for me. Find something that works for you. It doesn't matter if I call it God if I don't have a relationship with it. We get so caught up into that. People say, well, we have no opinion until you tell them you don't believe. Then they have an opinion. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm going to tell you something. You better pray for me silently. Don't come to me. So... Uh, and I mean that in a loving, nurturing way. So, uh, <laughs> so this is how I came to believe. I came to believe because when I was out there, a few times people tried to take my life. So we're not going to talk about all of them because that's not what I'm here to do. But we're going to talk about one. Okay, so I was uh, an entrepreneur uh, before I got sober. And when I was marketing my wares... Um, <laughs> Towards the end, uh, my prices had significantly decreased. And so I was in an area that would accommodate that. And uh, so anyway, I negotiated some terms and agreements with uh, an enterprising young fellow. He was pushing a basket. And we decided what was going to happen. He goes, come to my apartment. I'm like, your apartment? Now, I don't want to be judgmental because I'm, you know, I'm meditating now. Uh, but I was a little shocked that he had a basket, and an apartment. You know what I mean? Anyway, we went to this apartment. There were no signs that he lived there. That should have been a warning sign for me. A lot of things should have been a warning sign. But when I'm under the lash of alcoholism, I have to have what I have to have. And I'm willing to go through whatever I need to go through in order to obtain it. So we were doing our stuff all night, but we never fulfilled the terms and agreement. We were getting loaded all night. And so now I don't even know what time it is. I just know it's more than probably eight or nine hours. He's out of money. And, oh, I've got to go. I have some other appointments. And I said, I have to leave. He's like, oh, we didn't finish. I said, oh, no, you should have read the fine print. You know what I mean? In 30 minutes, if we haven't gotten it done, that's not my deal. 30 minutes after I come into the apartment. So I'm getting ready to leave. He says, I don't want you to go. I said, I have to leave. He said, I don't want you to go. I said, I have to go. He goes, I want you to stay. I said, I'm going to leave. My hand is on the doorknob. He says, I don't, you can't leave. I said, that's kidnapping. Now that was a trigger. Because when I said that, 
I had my hand on the doorknob about to turn it, and he picked me up by my neck and tossed me across the room. And this man is probably six foot two, six foot three. He was on me, choking the life out of me, intent on killing me. And I remember when I lost consciousness the first time and then I came back. I remember when I lost consciousness the second time and came back. They say it takes four minutes plus to, to strangle someone, right? And so I don't know how long. I just know that there were a couple of times of losing consciousness. And the third time I knew was going to be the last time. And people say when you lose your life, the whole, your past life flashes in front of you. Now, how would they know? If someone is dead, like, who told you that, right? Or whatever. <laughs> you just wonder where people get stuff. You're like, did they tell you that from the grave? You know, and so, so when I, when the third time came, everything became still. There was no sadness. There was only acceptance. And I thought, so this is it. So this is how I'm going to die in a strange place with a strange man doing strange things. And that was it. And the moment I accepted it, this man went from intent upon killing me to standing across the room. The power that plucked him off of me like a feather, that's the power I pray to right now. That is the power of healing, love, and light. There is no other explanation for it. So I know that a power exists. And when I go into step three and I'm turning my will and my life over, what does that look like? My thoughts and my actions. You know, Katie was eloquent in the way she took us through the book. It's giving me all the reasons I need to turn my will and my life over because I am running it. And if you would cooperate, then it would. But any time I say, if only, if only you, if only you, every time I say, if only, that means I'm in bondage. If only equals bondage. If I'm waiting for you to make it right for me, then it's always going to be wrong. Because I come from a place of spiritual discontent. And so when I surrender, how do I demonstrate step three? By moving immediately into step four. By getting down to causes and conditions. Because if we look at we agnostics, it says leaving aside the drink question, we tell why living was still so unsatisfactory. When I sponsor women, especially women that come to me with time, we are not talking about their drinking. If you come to me and you are 18 years sober, you are 25 years sober, you are 15 years sober, we're not talking about what you did when you were drinking because you haven't drank for 15 years. We are talking about the actions you are taking right now that are making you thirsty. Oh, hey, baby. He said, she sounds aggressive. I'm not. I'm totally sweet. Like, way sweet. So you're, you're at my hair. Anyway, so, um, on the inside. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so when I get into the inventory, and I'm just going to give an example because I want to talk about the defects of character. Okay, so there's a resentment, fear, and a sex inventory, right? Resentment inventory, person, place, thing that's pissing me off. Why? I agree. I live in columns one and two, either if I'm drinking or if I'm in untreated alcoholism. When I'm in untreated alcoholism, it's all about what they did, what they did, what they did, what they did, right? And I can't just, I can't just feel that way alone. I have to gather people, I have to gather forces, like little troops, so we can character assassinate them together, right? So here we go. I'm pissed off at Tiffany. Why? Tiffany keyed my car. Obviously, I should be pissed off. Why would she do that? Maniac, right? So so when I'm going through the inventory process, it's an extended column, right? 
It affects my self-esteem. If she thought much of me, she wouldn't have done it. My personal relations, I thought we were friends. My ambition, I wanted us to be like sisters. My pocketbook, she won't pay for it. It's going to come out of my household finances. That's going to put me in arrears. My sex relations, I don't feel sexy when my car is keyed, right? <laughs> and then column four, where was I selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and frightened? I slept with her partner. She found out and keyed my car. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. It's beginning to shift now, isn't it? Because <laughs> when we talk about defects of character, it's a natural instinct that far exceeds its intended purpose. It's okay if I'm attracted to you. It's not okay if I just push out all reason, all integrity, right? And I go behind the back of someone. You heard column three. I wanted us to be like sisters. I thought we were friends. What friend is going to do that? Character defects are about lack. I am not coming from a place of faith. If we look at step two and how it's laid out in the book, it lists all 12 steps before we even get to step three. That means in order for me to fully be restored to principled living, because that's what step two is, I have to take all these steps. It is a process. When I am in low self-esteem because I do not know my worth, I'm not grounded in a power greater than myself. I'm grounded in ego. I'm grounded in generational things that have been passed down, that have never been examined, that have never been questioned. And so I decide this is my truth. This is the best I can do. If I don't feel I can be loved and you have love, then guess what's going to happen? And I also am coming from a place that's so dark it looks like light. I need to prove that the person you think is so good and loves you so much, I need to prove that they're just as broken as me. It's not even about that person, although that's the person that's going to be injured. And so when I start looking at defects of character and I start examining, I just wanted to read this. So in step six, it says... Any person capable of enough willingness and honesty to try repeatedly step six on all his faults without any reservations, whatever, has indeed come a long way spiritually and is therefore entitled to be called a man who is sincerely trying to grow in the image and likeness of his own creator. And so when I do workshops, step six workshops, I do a lot of different workshops, but when I do workshops, I always ask the women, especially when I'm going into jails and prisons, what do you want to be called? What do you want to be called? What are you working towards? What is this? When we're going through inventory, that's where I look at the defects of character. We are looking at some behaviors. What is the goal here? Because after my babies read an inventory to me, and I believe in order to, to hear an inventory, I need to have done an inventory. So when they are reading this information to me, I'm listing their defects of character because they don't know. I don't know my own defects. I do now. You know, I mean, I know a few of them, right? I got a little mouth, right? And so um, so I'm listing their defects of character. But this is not about what you've done wrong and how broken you are. This is how do we how do we salvage what is fixable and and bless and let go of what is not, what doesn't serve us. And so, you know, I um, was debating. I was like, should you share this with these kind people? 
You know what I remember? I'm a mother of two cats, Sasha and Bianca, shout out. Um, (laughs) But I used to have two other cats, Cherish and Petra, for 16 years, and they are my babies. They are my babies, and I am their mother. And so, and I love them. Do you know what I mean? And so my cats... Sasha and Bianca and Cherish and and Petra, they would put their heads on my chest. And that meant everything to me because my mother is not a safe person, so I've never been able to lay my head on her chest. Right? I certainly can't now because she's in prison for murdering children. So I uh, would never want to harm my cats, but when, when Cherish was little... And she would just do things that cats do. And I remember I would spank her. I would spank my cat. And I had so much shame with that because she's a cat. She's a little teeny tiny. And I remember one day she did something and I was trying to get her out. And I would never share this. I only shared this with Carla R. Because when Cherish passed at 16 from cancer, I was so crazed And at that time, I didn't parent like that anymore, but I had to do an inventory because that was a secret that I used to beat my cats. And I just thought, you, I cannot be that type of person as much as I don't hit my babies, I didn't hit Petra, but just that I would have been that type of person and I have never shared that out loud. I mean, I've shared it since with people, but it was when you were talking, Larsine. And that is why I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it that we're going to get up here and just bear it. I do that to stay alive. I do that. This is not um, for me about where I get to go and how many places I speak at. This is I am honored to have been sober long enough and done the work that I have some type of information that may be useful. And it comes from everywhere. And so um, so I'm going to read this and, and share with you the defects of character and action. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me set it up, because you need to know. So I have a daughter. Her name is Serenity. And she's never been in my life because I was stone cold loaded the whole time I was pregnant. And that is never the type of mother or individual I would want to be. And when I found out I was pregnant, I wasn't going to have the baby because of the way I was living. I told you I was on the streets, right? I was negotiating with people like this guy that tried to kill me. That's how I lived, day in, day out. And I had to do a lot to recover from that so that I can stand next to any woman, any man, and feel equal, right? I've had people come up to me after I give a regular talk and say, oh, I thought my life was bad, and my problem is like, sweetie, don't compare. It's apples to oranges. Our story is our story, and please don't ever feel bad for me. My life is amazing now. It is unfortunate that it has the elements that I'm going to share with you, but those elements all serve for me to be the woman I am. So I found out I was pregnant. I was not going to have the baby. I decided to terminate it. When I decided to terminate it, I learned via every radio station, news station, and TV station that a member of my family had been arrested for raping, torturing, murdering, and dismembering the body of my 8-year-old cousin. That person is my mother. I am the oldest of three. Right? So there's my brother and my sister, and they were raised with her. I was not. And they've endured things that no one should ever have to go through. I don't think Child Protective Services means anything at all. 
because there's no way you can take a woman with a history of abuse and then give her three additional kids, my cousins, two of whom she's killed, one age two. So, so, all this is happening, right? This is all over the news. I'm pregnant, so I, I go through with the pregnancy, but I'm getting loaded the entire time. My old sponsor used to say, no friendly direction. And I remember going into labor for 17 hours, 17 hours, and praying, please let my baby be okay, just praying. And then Serenity being born. I named her Serenity because I wanted peace, and I'm holding her, and she's shaking, shaking in my arms because she's detoxing. That type of shame, these steps had to fix. That's why I love the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why these weekends are so incredibly important, right? And I remember... I remember not knowing, step one, overwhelmed. Our problems pile up on us and become astonishingly difficult to solve. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know how to have the life I had always dreamt of. I didn't have a plan of action. And I left the hospital when my daughter was three days old, and I've never seen her since because I could not get sober. I could not go visit her in her foster home because I could not get sober, and I didn't want the woman to think I was an alcoholic. So now, my daughter just turned 25 last week. And I've never seen her, but years ago, when I was six years sober, I registered with post-adoptions so that when she turned 18, if she wanted to find me, she could find me. So when it asks in step six, what, what do you want to be, what do you want to be called? Right? It's not that I need to be a good employee or I need to be called someone who's rich. I determine rich by the way I live, by the people in my, my life, by those who trust me. That's what rich is. And so I started sending things to my daughter, right, letters and pictures. And so I just happened to have called last year. Actually, I was with Bill. We were in Washington. And I had called post-adoptions, and they called me back. Grace has been my contact. And I said, I just want to know if I should send more pictures, more letters. And she said, oh, you can always send more stuff. And I said, how would I know if she's ever tried to find me? And she said, let me check. I just think she's going to check just to put, you know, play Scrabble on her phone. I don't know. So 10 minutes later, because it was a long time, but we were driving to the hotel, and she comes back, and she said, it looks like your daughter tried to find you three years ago. She was 24 at the time. I said, so when she was 21, she tried to find me. Why have we not been in contact? Where is she? What's going on? And she said, well, she didn't fill out the consent form. What? Right? I filled out the consent form. Even if she says, I just want to know what my mom looks like, give her everything. I filled it out. No, our policy, the legislation, here we go, Right? So I escalated, I escalated, and I get to this woman, Selena. (laughs) So Selena and I chit-chat. Now, I'm focused, because I have a mouth. You understand me, right? It's an asset and a defect. Depends on the day. And so... So what's happening is Selena's telling me the policy and the legislation and how she has to follow policy and the importance of the policy, and my daughter must also fill out the consent form if she wants the information, and she hasn't done that. I said, well, she's probably overwhelmed and blah, 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 but I filled it out, and can't you send it to her again? No, we can't. The policy says, but while she's talking to me, she says, well, in your letters, you say, and in your letters, she's referring to my letters like several times. And so 
I'm so focused on the conversation. At the end, she said, you know, there's nothing we can do. I'm so sorry. And I hang up. But then it all seeps in. She's read my letters, my sealed letters to my daughter. You won't help me, but you read my. So since then, I've been looking for someone to help me, to help me. I live a life that she won't be ashamed of. Do you understand? I break the cycle of insanity in my family the way I live. So I went to her boss's boss. Thank you. So I went to her boss's boss, Daniel. Daniel, it's like a politician. He was slick, right? I'm slick, Daniel. You can't out slick talk me. Don't do that, right? Well, maybe. Maybe, and so I would like counter, 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 right? And so I mean, like I was hard with it. You know what I mean? He'd go this way, I block, and uh, and then he said, you know, well, birth parents usually don't try to find their kids. You're a rarity. Great. Are you going to help me? So we, so anyway, I escalated it, and they sent me this letter telling me why they just weren't going to help me. And I was like, okay. Then I wrote an email. Daniel, I would be doing you a disservice by not sharing how vapid I found our conversation. It feels as though your department is on medication to numb the emptiness of your lives. <laughs> I'm probably going to have the inventory, huh, Katie? Okay. This results in you covering for each other but not accomplishing anything, thus staying broken. I am sure there are those who take positions with the county to make a difference. Public sentiment, in parentheses, this matter has been shared in several circles, to let him know, goes beyond me, is that your position and that of your staff are simple ones that provide decent health benefits, vacation days, basic pay, and a lot of red tape to get fired from. This setup allows the mediocre to seemingly flourish. I'm not done. You, Selena, and those like you are paycheck earners. It devastates me that, you're, that your element are in positions that should count for something. Unfortunately, we are in a society where people are captivated with the sound of their title. Too bad there is not the same level of fascination with one's character. I will continue to see what press we can bring to your broken wheel department, and then I signed it. Um, I said, cheap suits and slick tongues, Candace. <laughs> That's called a defective character. <laughs> I didn't share that with my sponsor. I did not share it with my sponsor because I felt she would have um, attempted to discourage me. So it says here, we'll go back to that, but uh, on page 64 at the bottom, it says every normal person wants, for example, to eat, to reproduce, to be somebody in the society of his fellows, and he wishes to be reasonably safe and secure as he tries to attain these things. Here's the deal, and this is the difference between a defective character and just a healthy behavior. In a defective character, we all want to be safe. 
right? But if I have not treated my alcoholism, if I am not spiritually fit, it doesn't matter that you want to be safe and secure. You can't be with me until I get what I need. I have no respect for anything you're trying to do, even when I say I do. Right? And that's why I love the sex inventory where it asks the questions, where did I arouse bitterness, um, suspicion, jealousy, and doubt? That's what I do when I'm in low self-esteem. I do a lot of game playing. I, I do a lot of manipulation, defective character to get you to prove that you love me. And the, the life I say I want, I rob myself of with every decision I make, with every action I take, because I am driven, driven by the brokenness. Until that has been repaired, there is nothing I can do but to continue. These are not even, I, I am so upset. I am so pissed off that they will not help me to find that she has been looking for me. Do you know that I would love to have a mom when I take my birthdays who sits in the front row and sings happy birthday? That is not something I will ever have. It does not make my case different. That means that I have gotten the love from the women in Alcoholics Anonymous that have come here, that have taken these steps, that have healed to a state where they were able to share what they had with me. They taught me how to love. They taught me to take loving actions even when I didn't feel like it. And so all the work that I've done over the years and then to find out that my daughter has tried to find me, does she think I don't even want her? She'll never know. I have these letters written. I mean, I have tons of letters that they don't have and clearly can never get now. But you know what I mean? I have all these things and then you say there's nothing we can do but you condone this woman. I should not have written that type of email. I'm clear on that. I am not in a state where I am at a point of making an amends. And I also know this. I don't know. I assume that he would not be receptive in this moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you say something that just devastates someone, because the type of, the type of well phrasing I like to do is I like to cover every area. Because if this one doesn't hurt you, let me just go over here just to see if may you know what I mean? So let me hit all the areas. So at least at least two of them I'm sure hurt. And until I, I process this with my sponsor, she will know, because I can't tell you guys and then not tell her. So she will know of the email. That's actually the second email. There's another one, I'm not gonna read it to you. But and it wasn't but it wasn't to him. I just learned he was copied on it. That's why I got his email, right? It was like to all of the people that weighed in or sending me the email that said we're still not gonna help you. I was like, Oh, let me let me respond. So On page 65, since most of us are born with an abundance of natural desires, it isn't strange that we often let these far exceed their intended purpose. When they drive us blindly or we willfully demand that they supply us with more satisfactions or pleasures than are possible or do us, that is the point from the degree of perfection, that is the point at which we depart from the degree of perfection that God wishes for us here on earth. That is the measure of our character defects, or if you wish, our sins. And so that's what happened. They didn't do what I wanted them to do, and I retaliated. 
I don't like feeling powerless. I do not like feeling overlooked. Those are things that set me off. And on days when I'm spiritually fit, I can do some writing. I can take the appropriate action. I can look at surrender. I am willing, as Bob D. says, to get up from the prosecutor side and sit on the defendant's side. And then there are days I'm not willing to do that. And I don't want to look at, I will even have the spiritual tools in my hand and set them down in favor of picking up old behavior. That is a part of humanness. It is also why I need to stay in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? I am entirely ready to let go of these things that hurt me. <sighs> Unfortunately, I still get like a sick satisfaction. I read this email to myself probably ten times. Before I go to sleep, I pick it up, I read it, I'm like, yeah, good. And then I, and then I go to sleep. Peacefully. <laughs> and so what I've learned is that I'm unwilling to surrender a defect as long as I still derive some type of pleasure out of it. It doesn't matter if my sponsor is saying, you shouldn't do this. How many people have told us what we shouldn't do and did it work? You know, I talk about the emotional winners, and so I've gained weight. I've gained weight because I am grieving. My stepmother's anniversary is in four days, and she was like my safe place. I was in a long-term sponsorship relationship that I left at the uh, age of 20 years sober. And so I've always been sponsored, but I've never allowed it to get that close. It is unfortunate that I expected that person who was my sponsor to be more than human. And as a direct result, I was devastated. I put that individual on a pedestal that they did not volunteer to sit on. Pedestals are very uncomfortable. So I I like a sponsor that I can sit on the couch with. Do you understand what I mean? And so my stepmom has always been my safe place. She's just always been. It doesn't matter if she got angry with me. I knew she wouldn't stop loving me. And I'm super busy. I, I've been in Alabama all week for a work conference. I came home for nine hours. I flew out to be here. And so I'm also tired. I'd like to be in my house. But because I'm busy, period, when I'm at home, I really just want to be in my house. And so I'm not taking care of my physical self, which affects my mental self. And so I've been putting on weight, which causes shame, and then I want to cover up. And so all of that, it's a thing. And as I have started to come out of it, because I do, I write three pages in the morning, right, meditate, but I have to have physical exercise in order for it to come together for me. That's how I treat my depression, because I don't want to die here. So I uh, hit a bottom at nine years sober, and I hit a bottom. uh, I was in love. It was my first love. I've been in a lot of relationships. Someone would always say, I love you. And because I'm a team player, I would say, I love you too. (laughs) But this time I really meant it. And uh, it didn't look like I thought love would look. It didn't feel like I thought love would feel. It was verbally and physically abusive. I participated equally in both. And I um, I remember praying to spirit to show me a sign if I should stay in that relationship. The police came. And so uh, <laughs> at that point, at that point, we did what we needed to do. We got engaged. And so uh, <laughs> we were engaged for six days, but they were long days like in dog years. And then, uh, and then it was over. It was over, that was it, and the obsession to drink returned. It returned as a direct result of my conduct. 
right? So anger is a normal emotion, right? And so when I'm angry, I get to do an inventory and to explore, okay, what's at the root cause of that, right? Because step six is really about lack. It is lack of faith, right? Lack of belief that I'm going to be taken care of. It is it fails to acknowledge that everything that happens is working towards my highest good. And it's hard to say that. You know, I said it to someone who lost their son unexpectedly, and they were just enraged that I would say that because they are grieving. And I, I'm not going to challenge that. It's my belief that everything that happens works toward my highest good. I don't know why a lot of things happen. But I also know I wouldn't be who I am without them having happened because they have forced me. When you come from my background, people like me have two choices. I'm either going to sit down in a corner and cry or I'm going to stand up. I have chosen to stand up. All of my life, I always knew how to lay down, but it was Alcoholics Anonymous that taught me not just to stand up, but what to stand for. Right? And so in this relationship, the obsession to drink had come back and my sponsor, Gloria Decker, who was the love of my life, was dying. She had a rare lung disease and so she... Um, Six six days later, after I thought I was never going to be in love again, six days later, I was in another relationship. Okay, I should tell you that. So so that's going on. Um, small detail, that person was already in another relationship. Okay, so there's that. I take them out. I take them out because people are talking about me, and that's making me look bad. So that we can't have that. I'm an active member of AA. <laughs> you know what I mean? So... So one night, I'm lying in bed with my then partner. I look over, I ask if I drink, would you leave? They said no. I ask if I drink, would you drink with me? They said yes. In Bill's story, Bill talks about his buddy coming over. They're going to get their drunk on, right? He says, unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing days past. When I'm in untreated alcoholism, I'm unmindful of your welfare. My thinking changes. Everything changes. So as opposed to me thinking this is dangerous and I should call someone, it is, I'm thirsty, you're there. It would be rude of me to not offer you a drink. This is a wicked disease. This is a way wicked disease. And when I'm deep in it, I'm, I am ruthless with it. And so going through that period, the shame that that cost me, you know, I define sobriety as I don't take anything at any time that affects me from my neck up. I don't drink near beer because I'm not near sober. <laughs> I don't smoke marijuana with or without a doctor telling me I can. Right? And I stabilize my mood with the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a personal decision. And I remember getting a hold of Gloria and telling her what happened. She said, Candace, you don't have the right to jeopardize anyone's sobriety. Stop quoting the book and start living by the principles. Right? And because they're so over the top, I'm like, what do I need to do? Get away from them. Leave them alone. You know what I mean? And so I ended that relationship. That person drank. That was, what, 14 years ago they're still drinking? If I can't get you sober, I can't get you drunk. I have gone through this process again. I have made amends for that behavior. I no longer live like that. But in order for me to change that living, because... This behavior was systemic of behavior I had always demonstrated. What started happening is because I'm sober, because I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would hide behind how many commitments I have, how well I sponsor, 
all the places I get to go in Alcoholics Anonymous, the fact that I wear a dress or a skirt when I'm speaking. And so when I tell you my conduct made me thirsty, that's exactly what happened. It was my conduct that made me thirsty. You know, um, drawing a blank on your name, but our friend yesterday that was, was reading one of the stories, I thought you were going to read my my other story, Jim. I thought you were going to talk about Jim. I'm going to talk about Jim a little bit. So Jim, I'm going to have to do this in a thumbnail sketch. So Jim lost the business through drinking, right, that he used to, but that he owned, but he inherited the business. So if you really start looking at it, you didn't work for it anyway. You know what I mean? You inherited it. So there's ego, but is it even deserved? Okay, there's that. I'm not going to take his inventory. Maybe a little bit. Okay. Because you know what I mean? People are like boastful. I'm not going to get into it. It's going to a whole other thing. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Stay focused. So, okay. So he was a good salesman, right? But he would drink while out, so he got violent. Okay. We came to him, share a little bit what we know about alcoholism. He made a beginning, you know, dipped his toe in, okay, dabbling, right? Probably quoting some things from the book, don't even know what they mean. You know how they are. (laughs) And uh, so all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. Okay, so first he lost, he, he began to work as a salesman for the business he lost through drinking. So I have written here, embarrassed. So we're already coming from this state. All went well for a time. He began to enlarge his spiritual life. I have feed my ego, not my spirit. Right? And then he ended up getting drunk. And so we're talking about what happened. So he said, Tuesday, I don't know what happened to Monday. So even though, well, we know what happened to Monday. Okay. So even though he's not drank yet, though, remember, Tuesday morning he came to work. So just because I'm not getting drunk doesn't mean I'm not exhibiting drunk behavior. So he came to work. I felt irritated. Trigger. I know you don't like it, but that's what it is. I got to call it what it is. You know what I mean? Don't judge me like that. Come on. So so I, I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I told you he was embarrassed on the other page, right? So I had a few words with the boss. We minimize. That's what we do. You know, so I'm probably trying to assert myself and the boss is checking me and saying, you know, Jim, when it was your company, you know what I mean? The boss probably just stepped to him like I did in that email. Okay. And so, so he said, but it was nothing serious. I decided to drive into the country to see one of my prospects, right? On the way I felt hungry. I'm grab a little bite to eat. It's all so simple in the beginning, isn't it? I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking, but I don't have to want to drink to get drunk. We already know that. I thought I would just get a sandwich. I also had the notion I might, I might find a customer at the bar. <laughs> I was familiar, for I had been going to it for years. He had been going to it when he was a baller, when he had money. So he hasn't even let go of all of that, Right? I used to always do, okay, okay, all right, okay. I had eaten there many times during the month. I ordered a sandwich, glass of milk, no thought of drinking. He's been thinking of drinking from the word go, from the word go. It it never left. It never left. 
And it said suddenly, it's never suddenly, but whatever, let's call it whatever you need to call it so we can move through it, right? The thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey, which is just why, why would you just not get the bottle, but okay, let's play the game. (laughs) That if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. And then it says, I vaguely sense I wasn't being any too smart. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, so we all know how it ended. He just wild out, lost everything, and threat of commitment. And so I look at that, and I have to ask myself, when it comes to defects of character, what is the whiskey in my milk? What behavior acts as the whiskey in my milk? When I went through that relationship and I demonstrated that behavior, I can't tell you of the public embarrassment and the shame it caused me. I would come into meetings where people were talking about me and saying horrible things, a lot of them true, unfortunately. I would get calls from people who didn't even go to the meetings I was at, and they knew what was going on. My sponsor was dying. I did not feel that I could trust anyone, and so every natural instinct was just out of whack. All I could think of was protecting myself. And what happens for me, and the beauty of the inventory is, I'm going to go back into the wound. I'm going to go back into the actual festering sore, because that's the only way to heal it. I have to go back into it so we can start putting some salve on it, right? The steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and understanding some new behavior, so that when I think of it, it doesn't cripple me anymore. Low self-esteem has common manifestations, and the only way that that's going to change is me taking some actions. When it asks me in the sex inventory, where had I been inconsiderate when I said hello? (laughs) It was never about you. It is about me not understanding my worth, my value, not examining it, and so I'm going to make decisions based on self. Self is small but wants to be heard. I told you I don't like feeling overlooked, so I'm going to do a lot of things that get me noticed, and good or bad doesn't make a difference to me. This is sober. I'm not even talking drunk, and I can't see it. And what was going on is that people were afraid to tell me about me because my mouth is so sharp. So the very thing that's an asset was also killing me. That is why I have to have people that are not afraid to tell me the truth. I went back through the work in order to heal, and I remember the fear inventory. The fear inventory changed my life. Of all the workshops I do all over the country, the fear inventory is the one I'm requested to do the most. The fear inventory, first column, the fear. What is the fear? Second column, why do I have this fear? Third column, what would it look like if it were removed? I always say if it were healed because it says in here we let God demonstrate through us who he would have us be. What does that look like? What actions am I willing to take? Because if I don't, the fear is going to cause my character to be defective. When I feel, when I wrote my inventory at nine years sober, I was afraid I was too damaged to be loved, too ugly to be loved, too broken to be loved, too used up to be loved. This is nine years sober. I came here and I immediately got into the work. I didn't sit here for years and not do any work. I immediately was taken through the steps, but we heal in stages, or at least I do. I don't, I don't want to speak for what you should do and what I'm going to say what happens for me. I heal in stages. I went through the work the first time and it did what it was supposed to do. It allowed me to then be able to look at some other things. It's just too much there so I can't see it all at once. 
And so when I started to look at those fears, if I'm telling you I, I'm afraid I'm too ugly to be loved, I'm not talking physical appearance, I'm talking spiritual deformity. I told you I got sober, I was bald-headed and toothless, I, I, I was 96 pounds. So all the things that led to me becoming that individual, that deteriorative state, those things don't just leave because I get sober and I, I get my teeth fixed and my hair back. I have Those things have to be healed. They have to be addressed. And when they're not addressed, what happens is if you have something I want, I'm going to take it. And then the greed. I didn't know I couldn't claim all my personalities on my taxes. <laughs> Until I got a letter. I did not know that. I can't do it. So I had to make an arrangement with the IRS to pay them back their money. I don't do that anymore. I didn't like the embarrassment of it. I don't like speaking one way and then areas of my life coming to me in the mail or showing up directly, making me look at the person I really am. What do I want to be called? And it talks about in step seven. Oh, oh, oh my God. So step seven. These books are so fascinating. Mm -mm. This is so juicy. I am telling you. Let me tell you something. I remember people talking about... I'm going to shut it down in 10 minutes. We're, oh, he's gone. I'm good. So, uh... <laughs> Leah's my buddy. So, um... You know, when people talk about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you want to go to sleep, read the book. I'm like, oh, the book. The book is a bestseller. What? It's like a reality show in print. You know what I mean? It just sucks you in and gets you going. I feel that we're either Bill or Bob, and I am Bill, and Bill is me, and we are one. And so when I'm reading Bill's story, he talks about it. You know, he said for three or four months, the goose hung high. I'm like, go, Bill, go. But then he said that FIFO day came when I drank once more, and I'm like, no, Bill, no. And so every page, like, has me on the edge. You know what I mean? So in step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcoming. I'm so tired of being in pain. I'm so tired of being at odds that I just want you to help me. I'm just going to believe. Like I said I did when I turned my will and my life over, my thoughts and my actions. I'm really just going to believe that you want the best for me. I choose to believe that. I can't get rid of my defects of character. I can't focus on a defect. What I do is I start cooperating with their removal. I start coming from a place that they are healed. That's why I'm on my knees, or however I pray. That's why I do it, because I believe that I can be healed. It says, right, in the firmatory, we let God demonstrate through us who he would have us be. What do you want to be called? I love having sponsors that help me to outline a course of action, not sponsors that determine my life. I don't check with my sponsor if I should or shouldn't take a job. I will ask their opinion, but you, you're not going to make the determination if I should. You can't say, don't take this job because you're not going to pay my rent. You know what I mean? Like, I hear a lot of crazy things. I'm like, that's not sponsorship. That's a dictatorship. That's cult-like behavior, and it's dangerous. So when I went through my bottom, my dear friend Larry T., I love Larry. Larry was the reason I stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous until I went to the sponsor I had uh, for 11 and a half years. And 
he had me read step seven and do some writing, and it said on page 72, this lack of anchorage to any permanent values, this blindness to the true purpose of our lives, produced another bad result. For just so long as we were convinced that we could live exclusively by our own individual strength and intelligence, for just that long was a working faith in a higher power impossible. This was true even when we believed God existed. We could actually have earnest religious beliefs which remained barren because we were still trying to play God ourselves. As long as we placed self-reliance first, a genuine reliance upon a higher power was out of the question. That basic ingredient of all humility, a desire to seek and do God's will, was missing. I've gone through that. I'm mouthing the words, but you can tell by my actions that I'm so absolutely frightened. There's being attracted to someone, and then there's just not caring and going all out and saying, I want what I want, and I'm going to force this life, right? I'm going to wrest satisfaction from the pain of others. I like to sing. I'm bad at it, but I do it with gusto. True, most of us thought good character was desirable. I did. I want to have good character. I want to be respected, right? But obviously, good character was something one needed to get on with the business of being self-satisfied. With a proper display of honesty, a proper display of honesty and morality, we'd stand a better chance at getting what we really wanted. So I'm going to act like I'm a decent moral individual. But if you get in my way, we will have a chat. But whenever we had to choose, and actually, when I read this book, when I'm reading it, it's, I come from an I place, because we're not talking about y'all. We're talking about me. My life is on the line. So, but whenever I had to choose between character and comfort, the character building was lost in the dust of my chase after what I thought was happiness. Seldom did I look at character building as something desirable in itself, something I would like to strive for, whether my instinctual needs were met or not. I never thought of making honesty, tolerance, and true love of man and God the daily basis of living. So what do I do? What do I do now? I choose to believe that everything is working towards my highest good. I will make this right. That's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to tell you something. Not only have I read this email ten times to myself and smiled each and every time, I have just been in glee. I even read the other email, which I'm not going to read to you, but it's exactly like that one, just worded a little bit sharply. And so now I know that I'm ready to take it to my sponsor and have her give me direction as to how I can make this right. And I pray that I won't do it again. What I don't want, because I have to remember, every time I give in to the fear, the fear that I'm not enough, the fear that they don't hear me, the fear, and it wasn't, it, this, what this represented, this situation, I felt they were saying, you're still that girl who had your daughter when you were loaded and on the streets. You're still that girl, and you don't count, and you don't matter, and we're not going to help you. That's how that email got written. You had to have heard it. It was hurt. It was all kind of hurt. 
And when you hurt me, I hurt you. And I maim you. I come from the black bag with it. But when I do that, alcoholism starts to say, see, you're still that girl. See? See? You haven't really changed. See? I cannot afford that. I don't want to share with the women I sponsor how good this life can be, and I refuse to fully surrender to it. I don't want to ask them to do something that I'm not doing. I always want to bring my humanness to the table and my willingness to have a new experience. For me, this process is a series of unfoldment, and sometimes we have to get spiritually butt naked. Do you understand me? Don't get vulgar with it. You know what I'm talking about. And so uh, I'm going to share this last thing. So there's a, 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 I guess she's a rapper, Cardi B. I was not a fan. Oh, my God. Do not mention Cardi B. Like, I would just go into these things, and she has all these followers, and it was just not good. It was not good. It was not good. I was anti, anti, anti Cardi B, and I don't understand it. And she talked like that, and oh, my God, I just couldn't take it. And so I was watching the Grammys, and I saw her perform, and so that was what it was. I just didn't like her. It doesn't matter. But when she won the Grammy, her reaction... Her reaction was so beautiful. Do you know what I mean? This chick used to be a stripper. And when I first saw her, like when I started seeing interviews, she was either missing her tooth or it was like a chipped tooth or whatever. Right? She came from the streets. Ah! If you spotted, you got it. What? And so then she has this baby with this guy. Don't even get me started, because I'm going to take his inventory all day and all night. He cheats on her. She takes him back. What? But then she won this award, and she was so nervous. And I remember she brought him with her, and I said, Candace, have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like she's felt? Have you ever just, this guy is her safe place. He has disrespected her. He has dishonored her, but he is what she knows, and she's got a family. And she wants to be safe and secure, right, and protected like everyone else. And she was so frightened. She was so nervous. And she was trying to say, and she says, excuse me, y'all. She goes, maybe I should start smoking weed. You know what I mean? It was just like this funny moment. I'm not saying we're going to start smoking weed. I'm just saying that it was so beautiful that I fell in love with Cardi B. I fell in love, I probably won't listen to the music, but I fell in love with who she is as a woman who people have bashed. And then they said all these crazy things about her on Twitter. She shouldn't have won, and, and she shut her page down. I don't follow her, but I read it, right? She shut her page down. And then she came back, and I said, they hurt her. And I was all pissed off that they hurt her feelings. You know what I mean? And so I was like, she reminded me of the life I came from. And she, and whatever it was about it, it was so painful every time, I just could not like her. But now I absolutely love her. I love her for her courage. I love that she goes after what she wants. I know that she loves her daughter. She's talked about not touring because she wanted to stay home longer with her daughter. I don't know this woman. I don't have her music or whatever, but I love her as a person. I don't ever want to, when I'm judging someone so harshly, 
It is because something about them is hitting an area that is unhealed in me. Because I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, you just mentioned her, I would lose my mind. And now I'm just like her fan. I'm rooting for her. I'm rooting for her as you guys rooted for me. I didn't think I would ever be in this place. I am entirely ready to let go of my defects of character. And so I will continue to invite the spirit of healing, love, and life, which is my power, into my life. And I will cooperate with the removal of these defects of character so that I can be usefully whole. Because for the woman who lived like I used to live, whether you have always had a job or not, because we get caught up into the, the trappings of it, a spiritual and an emotional bottom is a very real thing. We were put here to live, to thrive, to be honored. And so a few years ago I was invited to speak in Laconner, Washington. And every time um, I go someplace, they assign me with a host. And usually that host takes me around and tells me about the attractions. And so this guy was telling me about the Tulip Festival. Hundreds and thousands of people come from all over to walk through the tulips. And as we're driving, fields of tulips are being seen. You know, red tulips and yellow tulips. I was going to say green, but there are no green tulips. And alcoholics get very literal. There are no green tulips, you know what I mean? (laughs) Don't ruin my moment. So, So we're driving past the tulips. So he looks at me. And he gets inspired. He goes, do you want to walk through the tulips? Right? So I look at him. I'm thinking, no. Right? But before I say that, I do an inventory. Because you guys have taught me to pause. But there's movement in the pause. And that's an inventory. And I realized, I was 18 years sober, and I've been a lot of places between then and and 18. But I realized that I thought people like me, Don't get to do things like walking through tulips. That's for the refined women. That's for the soft women. People that come from where I come from with my past don't get to do that. And then I remembered Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous said, say yes to your life. Say yes to new experiences. And so I looked at him. I had five and a half inch heels on, right? (laughs) Because no one told me we were walking through any tulips. And so I said, I said yes. Yes, I would like to walk through the tulips. He pulled over. We walked. There's a picture in my office of me standing in a, and my arms are like this. You took me from alleys and strangers touching me, living in a way that no woman should live, coming from a family that most people don't survive. I volunteer at Covenant House for homeless trafficked youth. I take panels into jails, I sponsor, I show up in my community, I am respected at work. How do we become? We become by doing. From a broken woman to a woman walking through tulips. That is what I wish for you this weekend. Get your tulip walk on. Thank you for letting me share.